Amen. 1910, put your hands together and welcome to the platform, Natalie Rudyard. Yeah, love you. <laughs> You're like the biggest hype boy. I love it. Higher. Oh my goodness. 1910 Church, we are here today. Happy Sunday. It's good to be with you. Oh my goodness, you can be seated. You can be seated. Some of you are like, who is this girl? It's okay, you don't have to know who I am. I am simply a friend, a friend of this church, a friend of God, and I love the church. And it has been an honor to be with you. Ladies, didn't we have a wonderful time? I have a ministry called Raised to Stay, and it's a ministry for those who have grown up in the church or been in the church for a while and have been hurt by the church. And how many know if you love something, you might get hurt by it, right? But first, I just wanna say thank you to your pastors, pastors Jason and Angie, for trusting me with this space. Um, can we just give a hand for your pastors, you guys? The, the beauty of what I get to do is I travel all over the world to churches and I get to be part of healthy churches. And I get to introduce cities to churches that maybe there are people looking for a safe house to go to. And you guys, 1910 is a safe church. It's a healthy church and you are in a safe place today. And so if you have been driving down the highway and just happened to find this church, you are in a good house uh, this morning and you have family here. Um, and I have felt like family in the short amount of time that I have been here. So thank you, thank you, thank you for welcoming me into this house. This weekend we have talked all about what it looks like to be a, a house that is welcoming, not just to the Holy Spirit, but being willing to be radically interrupted for the lost, for those who are looking for a place to find safety. And I know that as I have grown up in the church, 20 years as a pastor's kid, 20 years in adult vocational ministry, I have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of what can come when you say yes to Jesus and saying yes to being part of a church family. And I have been loved, I have been hurt, I have been served, I have been abandoned. I have seen it all in these 44 years and I'm sure that I have a lot more to see. But this one thing that I know that God is faithful and God is good. And we as people, we will be peopley. And we as the church, we will be churchy. But no matter how many times people fail us, God's love will never fail. And He is with us, even in that wandering, wondering and wrestling as we are questioning our faith and we're questioning if we can trust people again. He sits with us in the tension of the not yet. And He is not in a hurry with our healing. And so if you've come here today and you are looking for a healer, rest assured that He is the one who has His arms wide open, just waiting for you today. And we too, as the family of God, we're not in a hurry with your healing that we want to be the family of God to you and, and be the kind of family that extends scarlet ropes out of our windows and says, come as you are, come as you are. And being a church kid, growing up in the church, I was a pastor's kid, so my parents did a really good job of helping us understand that we were their first ministry. And so as a parent myself now, I have two daughters who are 11 and 14, I really want them to know that they're my first ministry. And that's hard when I'm traveling every weekend, you know, and I've had all the mom guilt. I've had to talk with that over with my counselor, like, you know, is, am I ruining my children? And her, her response was, deadly, all of our kids are going to need therapy. It just depends on what the therapy is. So I felt encouraged by that. <laughs> my husband and I decided though we wanted to take them on a family vacation. 
And we were living in Colorado at the time, so we went to Disneyland. Now, I'm a Kentucky, Ohio girl. We tend to go to Disney World. Um, but this was Disneyland, and so I did all of my research and I told the girls, listen, I'll ride any ride you want to ride except that tower that drops me to my death. <laughs> any ride. I'm like, mom's, got, mom's 40, I'd rather not have vertigo for the whole trip, so I'll ride anything but that one. So we made that agreement. We get to the park, the park is at 30% capacity, which means that we could ride any ride we wanted to and we could basically walk right onto it. So after about six hours, we had been on every ride possible except that one. We're walking towards the tower and my children start squealing in glee because they finally are seeing this forbidden tower. And I look at my husband and I said, I think we have to ride this, don't we? And he said, I think we do. And I said, we'd be bad parents if we didn't. He said, I think you're right. The line was alarmingly small. That should tell you something. All of the Disney veterans are looking at us and they're like, oh, is this your first time riding the ride? And we're like, yeah. And they're like, oh, just you wait. I'm like, not helping. We get to the top faster than I'd like. And as we're waiting in the line, the elevator doors open to this death trap and it's basically two pews with some flimsy seatbelts. They usher us on and my husband and all 6'4", 280 of them, he is just like strapping us in. Like he is like got all of the power of God in him, just strapping everybody into their seats. My sweet nine-year-old, she already has her hands up. Like she's already seeing Jesus. She's like, let's go. You know, the Disney worker, she closes the door and she's like, bye. You know, the door closes. And for the next three minutes, I am pushed up and down, up and down until finally they take you to the very top of this thing and they do the most horrific thing. They open up the elevator doors and you're looking out over the entire park. Like I saw Nebraska. And as you plummet to your death, they take your picture. We got off the ride and our picture is the first one displayed in a beautiful frame as we're walking as if I want to buy a picture of my body leaving my soul. You see my nine-year-old and she's in the rapture. She is like going home and she is loving life. And then you see my teenager and she's questioning her life decision at this point. She's kind of like, <laughs> like, maybe this is awesome. I'm not really sure yet. My husband literally is laying across all of us. He's just like trying to keep everybody in, like nobody's going anywhere. He's not enjoying this. He's just trying to keep us all in. And then you have myself and I am in the fetal position. All you can see of me is my hand over my head and black mascara, just from where I was crying and seeing Jesus. And as funny as it was, as I walked past it, God was kind of like, hey, Natalie, take a picture of that in your brain, it's a picture of the church right now. We have so many of us who are brand new to this thing, brand new to church, brand new to ministry, and we're like my nine-year-old who's just having the time of your life and you can't wait to come every week. You wanna be in all of the meetings. You wanna go to all the services. You're just in it. You just can't wait to see everybody. You haven't been hurt yet. You're so innocent. Everything is just so new and fresh. And then you have some who are more in that adolescent stage, like my 14-year-old who's kinda like, yeah, 
I don't really know about this. I'm here, it's fine. I'm a little bit terrified. Maybe shouldn't have made this decision. And then you have people like my husband who are laid out across everybody, just trying to keep everybody in their seats. Like, look, nobody's leaving. We're all here. We're all in this together. If we're going down, we're going down together, right? Where nobody's out. And then you have people like myself in the fetal position who are saying, stop the ride. I want to get off. Seen enough. No, thank you. This isn't for me. I think of Paul in Corinthians where he's talking about how he's been beaten and flogged and he's been betrayed by his enemies and he's been betrayed by his brothers and how he's been shipwrecked three times. At some point, you got a question like, Paul, man, why do you keep getting back in the boat? Why don't we try some different mode of transportation? And it says in the next chapter, in chapter 12, that he says, three times I asked for the Lord to remove this thorn from my flesh. And all three times God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. And he kept getting back in that boat because he knew that every time he went, that the risk was going to be outweighed by the reward of seeing people come to Jesus. Because it's for the joy that was set before Jesus, he remained on the cross. It's for the joy that is set before us that we remain in position. And do you know that we rode that ride three more times that day? <laughs> and I learned every time I got on that if I listened really quietly, if I listened, I could hear the click before we fell. And that was less scary because I could brace myself for impact. And so if you've come here and this is your second or third time trying the ride, you're in good company and God has given us little ways to cope, to hear the click before the fall so we can brace ourselves for impact and know that there's a likelihood we're probably gonna get hurt again. There's a likelihood the church may be all churchy and the people all peopley, but God is still good. And if we'll just keep getting back in the boat, I promise you that the rewards are going to outweigh the risk. And I could stand up here and talk about church hurt all day long. I could talk about church hurt all day. We would, we would have an entire seminar on it, but I'm more interested in talking about revival than I am getting revenge. And so if you are here and you have been hurt, I have good news for you. The healer is in the room. And we could all be victims. It would get us a lot of attention, but I would rather walk in victory than be a victim. And so today we are going to be in the book of Joshua talking about one of my favorite women in the Bible, Rahab. She's an unlikely hero in this story. And man, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night one night, not long ago, as I was going through a really difficult season of ministry to the phrase, consider Rahab. Now, if you wake up to consider Rahab from the Lord, that could be alarming if you know the story of Rahab. Like, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me? Don't love that little prophetic word you just gave me. But I did what everybody does in the Christian community. I Googled consider Rahab. <laughs> I got down to the bottom of all of the search and I came to this one article that was a message from the 80s, a sermon. And the pastor wrote this, consider Rahab who was known for being a prostitute. Her reputation was a prostitute, but her legacy would be that she would be a defender and a protector of God's people in the lineage of Jesus Christ. In other words, it doesn't matter what you've done. It only matters whose you are and where you're going. 
because it was at a time in my life where I knew God was calling me to do something. He had something for me to do, but all I could focus on was how badly I had failed in the past and how many failed attempts I had had. And God was telling me, if you'll just remain in position, if you'll just keep showing up, keep giving me what you have, I'll be the one to remind you that you are mine. Just don't keep going back to the past. I got something new for you. And so this morning, my prayer for all of us is that we would get a new name today that we wouldn't be assigned who we were, but we would prophesy to who we're becoming. And so where I'm from, it's custom for us to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you're okay with it, I'd love for you to join me in standing as we go into the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter one, verse one. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove, and he instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath the bundles of flax she had laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, that you are here among us today. We don't have to beg. We don't have to behave. We don't have to say special words. God, you have been waiting for us here in this room and the room has been set. The table has been set. And we, as your children, we come to feast on your word. God, I pray, Lord, that every heart that is hungry would be fed today. God, that every soul that is thirsty would be watered. God, I pray that every word that I speak would be your word and your word alone, God, and that it would go out and it would not return void. God, as your servant, I say yes to you, Lord, be it unto me as you have said, Lord. And Thank you for the opportunity to bring the word to your people today. I pray for everyone here who is weary that they would find strength. Those who are in the waiting, God, that they would find rest, Lord, and that there would just be a sense of family and unity in this house. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Amen, you can be seated. So Jericho was a mighty obstacle in this conquest of Canaan. And so, Joshua did what any good leader would do. He sends out two spies to go spy out the land. Now this land was being monitored by these evil people called the Amorites. And so the spies had to go and try to find any open area where the rest of the troops could come in and they could dominate this part of the country. Now, as the spies were looking for shelter, they were directed to a Canaanite woman's home named Rahab the harlot. Rahab had a reputation, a reputation so strong that even after she came to the knowledge of God, even though she had already said that God was her, her savior there, that she was actually still having this reputation attached to her name. Everywhere you see her name in the scriptures, it's Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot. So finally, you're like, we get it. Rahab was a harlot, right? Now, the equivalent to this would be all of us have a past. 
It would be like going to the grocery store and seeing someone and being like, oh yeah, that's so-and-so, they were a drug addict. Or, oh, that's Mary, she got pregnant before she was married. Or, oh, that's Sam, he has addiction. You know, whatever it was, it would just be like having our past constantly attached to our name. And that would have to be exhausting after a while to constantly be reminded who we were. But Rahab was a friend of God in enemy territory and the spies found refuge and protection in her home. Now, had these spies gone anywhere else, they would have risked death. They would have risked imprisonment. So they couldn't worry about Rahab's reputation. They had been led there. That was where they were going to find safety. And they couldn't worry if they were going to get a reputation themselves for going into the home of someone who's known to be a harlot. And honestly, Rahab was really taking a risk too because she was in one of the most evil places ever that was under God's judgment. And it would have been much easier for her to have turned the spies in and been claimed a hero of her day and that part of her culture rather than to be the one to hide these spies. It makes absolutely no sense that Rahab would even know who God was being in this evil part of culture. As a matter of fact, it's much like the culture we live in today. It was under God's judgment. It was evil. It was wicked. It was vile. There, it makes no sense that Rahab would even know who God was. She didn't have a Joshua. She didn't have a Moses. She didn't have pastors Angie and, and you know, the, the pastors around anybody, any pastors that we know that would be able to even tell her who God was. She didn't have a pastor Jason to mentor her. She didn't have a pastor Angie to mentor her. She was all by herself trying to figure out who this God was. But the Israelites who were coming through her home were talking of a God who had brought people out of wildernesses, who had parted the Red Seas, and it was through the say-so of the redeemed that she began to hear who this God was. So many of us are afraid to talk about our testimony because it's messy. But really that testimony of how God brought us out of the mess is an invitation to others who did not grow up in church, who didn't grow up in a Christian environment to hear about a God who saves. Rahab had heard from the many men that she had come into contact with that the Israelites were to be feared. She heard the stories of their escape from Egypt and crossing the Red Sea, the wanderings in the wilderness, and their recent victory over the Amorites. She learned enough, she had come to the correct saving conclusion that we read it here in Joshua 2.11 that she says, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. It was the redeemed saying so that brought this woman into an understanding of who God was. It was through their testimonies of God's amazing power that she came to believe by faith and went from a prostitute to a protector and defender of God's people and a critical part of history. What I love about this is that the authority that the Israelites demonstrated through the power of their God was stronger than the influence of the culture of the world around her. Our world is so loud, it is so influential, and the church has to make a decision if we are going to join the world and seek influence or if we are going to partner with the kingdom of God and choose our authority. But we cannot have both. The more we try to look like the world, the more we will become like the world, and then we won't be the salt and light that we are called to be because we're just gonna look like everyone else. As I said before, it would have made a lot more sense for Rahab to have been a friend of her own country 
than to be a friend of God. Because by partnering with the people around her, she would have been hailed this hero who turned in the spies, not a traitor who had brought them in and rescued them and protected them and defended them. And so many of us in this Christian faith are so desperate to be liked that we have abducted, we have completely handed over our authority. And I wanna remind all of us that we have never been called to be liked, we've been called to be obedient. And the more that we try to be liked as Christians, the more we turn over that authority that we have been given and we look just like the world to a world who is looking for something different. As the church, so many times our attempts to influence the world results in us looking more like the world because we're compromising to fit in. But when we walk in our God-given authority, we introduce others to the power of God that will lead them to to salvation. One of the hardest things I think for Christians today is that a lot of us don't know how to even pray the prayer of salvation with someone. We don't even know how to present the gospel to someone. We've been raised up on Instagram hot takes. We've been raised up on quotes about God and the other things that content creators have made so much so that if we were to put a hot take next to scripture, a lot of people would think the hot take or the cool quote was actually scripture. And yet it's nowhere to be found. Jesus didn't say it, God didn't say it. Somebody else said it, but we have learned to be raised up on inspirational quotes rather than this word of God that it fights like a sword. And we have become a biblically illiterate generation. And then when people speak the word of God over us, we become offended because it doesn't make us feel good. And the only way that we can fight with the word of God against an enemy who also knows the word of God is to know the word of God. And so when we are desperate to be influential, we begin to compromise the very word of God that we're supposed to be fighting for and fighting with. The definition of influence is the capacity to have an effect on the character development or behavior of someone or something or the effect itself. We begin to control our reputation or how we are perceived. We seek followers. Some people will even buy followers. We'll chase platforms, microphones, and opportunities. We'll compromise to maintain status. We'll gossip to feel important or in the know. We'll compete rather than collaborate. We'll get jealous instead of preferring people over ourselves. We'll manipulate people to do what we want. We'll operate out of an orphan spirit. We'll maneuver to keep our image clean and we'll use intimidation to appear powerful and untouchable. This is why we have seen so many leaders fall in the current church is because we have put celebrities in suits and called them pastors. And when you put people on a platform because they're talented, not because they're anointed, then the sheep are compromised. And then we wonder why we're standing in a rubble of deconstruction and it's because the foundation was never Jesus, it was another man's castle. And it's not every church and it's not every organization, but you can understand though why the sheep are a little bit hesitant to trust another shepherd after they have been hurt by someone who was supposed to protect them. And I know that yes, there are wolves in sheep's clothing, but there are also sheep crying wolf. Because what influence does is it makes anybody who speaks authority into our life look like an abuser. And I want to remind us all that accountability is not church hurt. 
We all need a shepherd over us. We all need somebody in our lives who's going to make us better, that iron sharpening iron. But what influence does is it makes us suspicious of anyone who would hold us to a higher standard. And suspicion is just discernment that has been masked by fear. So when I am fear-filled, when I am fearful, then anybody who tries to come into my life with good intentions to love me and correct me and gently rebuke me now looks like my enemy because I've had it done bad in my past. And so when we come into healthy community, yeah, we're a little bit shell-shocked, a little bit skittish because we don't wanna get hurt again, but what it is doing is also helping us heal and come back into the family of God. And we know in scriptures, it says that where there is unity, it commands the Lord's blessing and to not forsake the gathering of the saints. But the enemy wants everybody out here in the world to think that the church is all going to hurt us and that every shepherd is going to abuse us. And it's through this influence of this conversation of deconstruction that we have seen people say, not only I'm not gonna go back to church, but I'm just gonna turn away from God altogether. And that should break our hearts. That people have left our churches potentially because we haven't been good shepherds. We haven't been good families. We haven't extended a scarlet rope out of our windows. We've been assigning scarlet letters and deciding what is sin based off our interpretation of sin or what we decide is sin because, hey, it wasn't us. It was somebody else. Raise the Stake came about because I was tired of watching my friends leave the church and so many of them were leaving because they got divorced and the church said, no, thank you. We can't have you here. Divorce is a sin. We'd rather you be in an abusive marriage than get divorced. Family members got pregnant before marriage and that seemed to be the unforgivable sin for that time and so they were cast out as if they were irredeemable. And so what we have done is we have shown a world that we're not the safe place that we promised to be, but we are going to be just like the world. And I wanna tell you something, the world is a ready receiver of those the church rejects. And they'll welcome those that we have cast out with open arms and they'll validate their pain and they'll validate their their victimhood. And really what we need to be is just as Rahab was, is a house that is open, that will be a defender and a protector of God's people. Elena Moore writes that the orphan spirit, it will make us see others through a lens of a deeply rooted resentment and anger. And what I see in a lot of churches today is this orphan spirit where we actually have believed the lie that God has favorite kids. We come to sit at the table and he's prepared a banquet before us in the presence of our enemies. And we've been given all of the same amount, but all we can focus on is what the person across from us has. And so we begin to hoard and we begin to protect and we begin to self-preserve. And I wanna remind us all that self-preservation is not a fruit of the spirit. That when we self-preserve, we can't be generous. We can't let things overflow out of us because we're so busy just trying to keep what's ours. When there are spiritual orphans who are dying and thirsty and hungry and we're so busy, just us three let us be that we forget that our doors need to be opened. When I was uh, in Haiti right after the earthquake, it was the largest disaster to ever hit the area, but also in the world. And we were in the tap tap riding up to an orphanage and I noticed to my right, there's this beautiful green rolling hill section that just extends for miles. And it was a huge black gated fence up over it. And I asked the guide, I said, what is that? And he said, that's the largest burial grounds of those who lost their lives in the earthquake. I believe there were over 
300,000. And he said, would you like to get out and pay your respects? I said, absolutely. And so he pulls over and we get out and there are these beautiful Haitian children playing at the gate. They're in their Sunday best, bright bows, black shiny shoes, and they're, they're digging in the dirt, they're playing with each other. And I asked him, I said, are they here to, to pay respects to their late parents? Like, what are they doing here? And he said, no, he said, every Sunday morning, they climb through the rubble of what remains of their city, and they come waiting for their parents to come back and get them. And my heart broke. Because yet again, the Lord is showing me a picture of our current church in the rubble of deconstruction. And every Sunday morning, spiritual orphans are climbing over the rubble of what remains, hoping that just one church will open their doors and be the spiritual moms and dads that they're desperate to have. And yet we're fighting over coffee temperature and who gets to sing what and who gets scheduled for what and who gets to teach what. And they come in to find a divorced family when all they wanted was some place to belong. And my conviction is that if we don't get it right now, that every single Sunday, we're gonna keep turning away the ones that God is sending to us because the enemy has won in his attempt to divide us from within. From the very beginning in the garden, Satan has been trying to divorce the family of God. And yet all we can focus on is dropping hateful social media posts trying to tear the church down, down the street. And I do believe that we are in a time right now where the Lord is asking, where is the radical remnant who will rise up and build a church whose foundation is Jesus Christ? Who are those who will be so tired of the division that they will have no choice but to come together and be the healed version of the church as it was always intended to be. And if we never served another cup of coffee, if we never had fancy lights and the big worship team, if all we did was come together in a mud hut and offer the message of Jesus Christ, that we would be equally as devoted to that mission as we were with all the bells and whistles. I do believe that the church, the end times church will begin and end in the same way. I believe that what we saw in acts and homes and in small groups, I do believe that as the end times come that that will continue to happen, that we will begin to see those of us who have gathered scattered to be the church to a hurting world. And it won't be easy. And if we've been treating the church like a country club, now would be a really good time to start treating it like it's the training ground that it's supposed to be. I don't recall hot coffee in the upper room. And it was in that upper room that they determined that no matter what happened to them, that they weren't gonna give up, they weren't gonna quit. And we as the church, that has to be our resolve. That when we come together, yes, we get to enjoy the benefits of being a, a first world church, but with a third world mentality that no matter what happens to us, that we're not going to give up, we're not gonna quit, that they can kill us, they can take our families, they can take our homes, but Jesus is the prize. It's interesting how this message has taken a turn different from the one that I preached in the first service. 
And it can get clumsy sometimes when you're preaching the word of God because you can hear the voice of the lawyer giving you direction as you're also trying to follow notes. <laughs> but I, I want you to know that I, I feel the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God so strong in this service. Because what God does is he builds beautiful things out of ashes. And I've been struggling to keep with my notes because that's what I'm supposed to do, right? Like, I'm supposed to give a good message so that you present that word and it's clear. But God is doing something very special here. using you to do it. Not in competition with him, but in partnership. I know you've been through a lot. Not just individually, but as a church. And it doesn't even make sense that you're still here. I'm tired of watching entire churches crumble because of offense. I believe you are the salt and light in Bernie. I believe your pastors are still in position because God has called them to a greater thing than just building a group of people to come together. The Lord is calling you to unity this morning in a way like you've never been unified before. And I believe that's true of the whole church. If you're watching online, that's not just of this church. I believe that God is doing something radical among his people and it's, it's a heart-wrenching, heart-breaking call back to their first love, to our first love, to building on a rock that is unshakable, a foundation that won't be broken because people got their feelings hurt. But there, there will be a unity so strong in this house that no matter what comes, your response will be, be it unto us as you have said. When I say I didn't see this coming, I did not see this coming and, and I just believe it's prophetic for this service. When the Holy Spirit hits me, I cry. I can't control it. The Lord is calling for two things this morning. He's calling for healing and unity. Because a healed person will help others heal. We know that hurt people will hurt people, but a healed person will help heal people. If we could stand up together this morning. Um, I don't beg for altar calls. I believe that hungry people are desperate people. If you want more, if you want, if you want healed, if you want that freedom, 
it's here, it's right here. It's always been here. It's always here for you. And so as the prayer team comes forward, we're gonna do two things. If you have been hurt by the church, if you have hurt somebody in the church, if you need to ask for forgiveness or be forgiven, I want you to run down here. I want you to start moving. I, because I'm, I'm telling you right now, because the next thing we're gonna pray for requires healed people. It will require a unity like you've never had before. So if you, have, if you have ever been hurt, if you have ever been wounded, not by this house, maybe by this house, I don't know, but any house at all, any shepherd, any person, I need you to come quickly, quickly. Because what's happening next is going to be 100%. It's gonna require unity. I, I need, I need the, this part to happen first. I want you to begin to pray. Church, extend your hands. I don't know if you've, ever, if you've never been church hurt, you need to just count your blessings that it has not happened. But the likelihood of it happening is very good. And so we have, we have to be willing to weep and mourn for the things that break the Father's heart and hurt people break the Father's heart. So I want you to just extend your hands right here to everybody who's up here. This is, this is triage. This is like the ER. We have brought people in here. We're lowering people through the roof now. We're lowering them to the healer. And I want you to pray like you have never prayed before for someone to be healed. Father, in the name of Jesus, we call out to the healer who is here right now among us. And we ask you, Lord, to mend broken hearts, to restore minds, to give us faith again by faith as Rahab had to believe that you are God and that you are good and that your church is, is broken and it's imperfect, but it's still yours. God, we ask for there to be a restoration in relationship, God, for forgiveness to flow freely, Lord, for us to receive forgiveness and to ask for forgiveness. God, forgive us for hurting your people. Forgive me, Lord, for speaking words against a brother or sister. Forgive me, Lord, for being one to cause division or strife, Lord. Search my heart, O oh Lord, and show me where the wickedness in my heart before I point out the wickedness in others. Let it start with me, God, that this repentance would lead to revival. That repentance would lead to kindness, God, that there would be a kind Father that would meet us now. And as we experience your kindness, that it would lead us to the repentance that we are called to. God, bring your church into revival. Bind up the broken hearts, God. Heal those, Lord, who have been desperate for healing. We pray for physical healing as spiritual healing is happening. We pray, Lord, that as we release those who have hurt us, those we have held in the prisons of our heart, God, that as we release them, that there would be healing, God, in our bodies. Anxiety would be gone. Depression would be gone. Fear would be gone. As we reach up, Lord, for the hem of your garment and believe, God, that as you heal then, you'll heal now. We pray for restoration in our relationships with pastors. We pray, God, for there to be full reconciliation where possible. And for where there is areas where it's not possible, that you would give us the strength to be able to bless those who have cursed us. Bring us into unity. Bring us into healing as the family of God. That we would lack nothing. That we would lack nothing, Lord. God, for you are a God of abundance. God of restoration, of God of healing. You long for your family to be restored. 
You long for your children to be in one accord. Thank you, Jesus. Angie and Jason, pastors Angie and Jason, I want you to come right here, pastors Angie and Jason right here, and Annie. We're going to pray a prayer of unity. How many love your pastors? How many know that what they do, it's not easy? know that they fight and they pray for you and they intercede for you and they fast for you and that they love this church. I've not done this before in this way, but church, I believe that you are about to see a revival like you've never seen before. know you love them, but what I would love for you to do, if you're comfortable, I would love for the whole church to come forward and come right here. I want you to grab hands with the person next to you. Come on. We're all the church. This is your church. Is this your family? This is what families do. It's like a big Thanksgiving dinner. I'm going to have you pray. Come on. Come on. Come on. I've asked my brother here who loves this house. How long have you been here? 16 years. 16 years. He's been protecting physically, but I see him as a spiritual protector as well. And I'm gonna have him pray over your pastors. And church, I want you to pray for a few things. I want you to pray for protection. I want you to pray for unity. And I want you to pray for a radical remnant to rise up from this house. That what the enemy has tried to steal, he has been a liar, he has been an accuser, he has been the one to try to bring strife and division. But today, as a unified front, we say not our pastors, not our church, not this property, and that from this fourth moment on, it will be a day of multiplication and not division. A day of addition and not subtraction. That people will come from all parts of the world to find a safe house here. That there will be scarlet ropes extended from every window. And that we will prophesy of who we are becoming, not reminding each other of where we've been. And so as a father of this house, I'm going to have our brother here lead us in a prayer. And you guys, I want you to lift your voices like you've never done before. 
and contend for your pastors right now. Come on. And this church in the name of Jesus. Come on. Lord Jesus, I ask to bless the hearts, the minds, and the souls of Pastor Angie and Pastor Jason. Every heart, mind, and soul in this building and outside that we have not brought inside belongs to you. May the words of your of, of your way pass through the mouths of our pastors and every member of this church. This is a safe place to worship and minister to each other in any safe fashion that we see fit and that you see fit. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will continue to bless Pastor Angie, Pastor Jason, all the pastors, our youth pastors, our worship pastors, continue to bless them with your word and tell them every way that we can gather those that are lost that need to be found. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. I owe you. <laughs> now with everything you have, do you believe it? I want you to start just to worship right where you are. Begin to thank the Lord for what He's done, what He is going to do, and begin to declare the miracles that you're going to see in this house. There will be healing. There will be salvation. There will be reconciliation. There will be restoration. And the power of the name of Jesus, you will lack nothing. You will lack nothing as a church. You will lack nothing as the people of God, as He continues to pour out His Spirit upon His sons and His daughters, you will prophesy over a city. You will prophesy over dry bones. And they will live, and a mighty army will raise up out of this house. Do you believe it? Come on, begin to worship. Come on. Come on. Come on.
doing in this house. And we're going to walk in that confidence. We like to say Godfidence around here. He's for us and he's not finished. And I agree with what Natalie said. I believe that in these days and times in which we live in, our world is in desperate need to see the church of Jesus Christ. The way that he envisioned it. The way he dreamed it up. That's on us. That's on us. If not us, then who? If not us, church, then who? Who's with the pastor today? Today we walk in our calling. We're going to walk as the bride of Christ. We're going to be bold in our faith. We will no longer cower and be ashamed of the gospel. We're going to run to those who are hurting, to those that we have hurt. We're going to seek restoration there. Come on, you hear me? This place is open for everyone because that's who our Father is. That's what Jesus does. So here's what we're going to do as we leave here today. The same way that Jesus has treated us, we're going to treat others in the same way. The same way that Jesus has treated us, we're going to treat others in that same way. Are you with me today? And so, Father, we leave this house here today. We leave here today, Father, going as you're called people. We're not perfect people. We still fall short. But Father, we're going to fix our eyes on you and we're going to call out to you. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to well up in a mighty way like never before. You're in us. And Father, we will no longer try to subdue or keep you down. No, we need you, Spirit. We're asking you to rise up within us. And God, as we go out, we go out as your ambassadors. Father, we're going out empowered by your spirit. Father, we're going to go and preach and teach. We're going to walk into signs, wonders, and miracles. God, we're going to walk to those who are hurting, those who are sick and lame. Father, those that are dazed, confused, we're going to share the reason for the hope that we profess. We will no longer hide under a bush. Oh no, we're going to let it shine like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, Father. We're going to be the salt of the earth, Father. Jesus, use us. Jesus, use us. Move through us, Holy Spirit. Father, forgive us of trying to build our kingdom and our cathedrals. This is all about you and it is all for you, Father. So God, use us as you send us now. It's in a mighty, awesome, wonderful feeling and adjective right now. Come on, when you think of the name of Jesus, what comes to your mind? It is in that power. It's in that name. It's in that name above every name. It is in that name that every knee will bow. It is in that name that will one day, every tongue will confess. It is in that mighty, awesome, wonderful, matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Ministry team, if you guys would please stay. Listen here today. You heard Natalie say it. You heard Pastor Angel say it. Do not leave here today, my friend, without giving your life to Jesus Christ. If there's a hurt, maybe something that, that, that was brought to your attention today, let us step into that with you and pray and ask the Lord to meet you in your time of need. God, we thank you for what you've started in this house. And we look forward to the greater days. 
thank you. You're dismissed.